1: It's time for Justice Matters with former federal prosecutor and MSNBC analyst, Glenn Kirshner. Today, Glenn is going to run down some of the bigger legal stories of the week, and he has some ideas on reforming the intake process of the criminal justice system. He also has some new features for this longer weekend podcast, including a few personal stories from his past, like how he began his TV career. Here's Glenn.
2: I'm happy to be with you again for our extended weekend chat here on Justice Matters. As you may know, on the weekend, we try to air things out a bit. We start with a legal recap. What were the biggest developments of the week on the legal front? Is anybody getting indicted? Ever? Is anybody being held accountable for their crimes against the United States? Well, you know, other than the folks that Donald Trump told to attack the Capitol on January 6th, you know, the people who have no power, no influence, no connections, the boots of the insurrection, as opposed to the suits of the insurrection, the people who do have power and influence and connections, you know, the, the ruling class criminals. Are any of them ever going to be indicted, he said, cynically? Well, there is some good news. There is some apparent movement in the direction of accountability, dare I even say, in the direction of justice. You know, could justice actually be on the horizon? Maybe if we get out our binoculars and you know we squint and the light is just right you know maybe we can see a little bit of justice out there on the horizon you know I for one still maintain that it's coming right just because a criminal former president has not yet been indicted does not mean he won't be indicted And we did have some developments on the Donald Trump indictment front this week. And then after the legal recap, we will turn our attention to the question of reform. Reforming something in our government, trying to fix something that we all know is broken. You know, we've talked about police reform, for example. We've talked about reforming the oath of office. We've talked about certain aspects of criminal justice reform, but there are a lot more discussions, friends, that we're going to have, including about criminal justice reform. I've got a couple of projects I'm working on, one that involves reforming the intake process. Now, when I say the intake process, what do I mean by that? Well, it is what prosecutors do every day of the week, thousands and thousands of times across the country. We make decisions about whether to charge a defendant or to decline to charge a defendant, right? Those are calls that I had to make literally thousands of times when I was pulling what we call screener duty at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office. And I will talk at length in a future episode about what it's like to pull screener duty. I think I'm still getting over some minor PTSD from the many, many, many days I screened cases. Okay, that's a joke. I don't think I'm suffering from PTSD from my days on screening duty. But, you know, screening is a challenge it is that moment when a prosecutor is presented with a case by a police officer, a street lockup for example from the night before. In DC we might have hundreds of lockups every day and those cases get presented to the prosecutors, to the screeners and the prosecutors have to make a decision. Do we charge the case? Do we decline to charge the case? Do we put the person in the system? Do we kick them to the street? Do we put him in the system? Do we kick them to the street? Do we paper the case? Do we no paper the case? These are all terms of art that, you know, refer to the charging decision we have to make. And believe me, the art is not at all pretty, but I'm really excited to talk about reforming the intake process of the criminal justice system. So we don't just continue to mindlessly do what we all know doesn't work. You know this binary choice, put them in the system, kick them to the street? We need to have more choices than just those two because we have seen the system fail when all you can do with somebody that the police arrest is put them in the system or kick them to the street. This is an issue we can take on. This is an issue we can tackle if we choose to and I'm going to talk more about that in future episodes. But today's reform topic involves the way the Department of Justice has decided to deal with a criminal president, former president. But I don't want to talk about the crimes that are being investigated right now by special counsel Jack Smith. I want to talk about the crimes that it appears Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice have decided not to investigate, not to pursue not to indict, not to prosecute, not to hold Donald Trump accountable for. Now you may be saying to yourself, wait a minute, Glenn, you're not inside the Department of Justice anymore. You may have been there for decades, but you're not there anymore. So you don't know exactly what the Department of Justice is or is not investigating regarding Trump's crimes, okay, fair point, friends. but. I actually think there is one clear indicator, one concrete tell regarding crimes that the Department of Justice has decided not to pursue. And we're going to talk today about what that tell is. What we're going to talk about is the danger of declining to investigate and prosecute certain Trump crimes, and then we're going to add a little Feature at the end of today's episode. Friends, I kind of feel like I got a lot of stories. Everybody's got a lot of stories, right? And I don't know that mine are any more interesting than anybody else's, but I do know I've had some pretty interesting experiences, you know, starting with growing up a gutter kid in New Jersey who got in his fair share of trouble, to playing college football, to nearly failing out of college entirely, to putting myself through law school, to joining the army and serving on active duty in, among other places, Alaska, to joining the Department of Justice, to serving as the chief of homicide at the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office, and after a little over 30 years as a Fed, to retiring and going from one job to the four or five jobs I do now. You know, going from having endless layers of supervision at the Department of Justice to having no supervision at all that I have to navigate now in this new professional chapter two, which involves, in part, running my mouth on TV and being on social media platforms. I can tell you, friends, that's not exactly where I thought I would end up when I retired from the Department of Justice. As a result of this new professional chapter two, I have a lot of folks who ask questions both online and in person about, for example, you know, what was it like when you went from the federal government for decades to talking on TV as a legal analyst? So I thought to the extent some of these stories you know, might be you know, not just of interest, but maybe of some value for people who are contemplating following a similar path. Questions like, how did you start a YouTube channel? How do you navigate the social media world being the old guy that you are and probably not all that tech savvy? Which, truth be told, is an understatement. I describe myself as E incompetent. You know, so I thought that moving forward, I would end each one of our weekend kitchen table chats with a little bit of a personal story or anecdote and I want to give folks the opportunity to ask questions that they'd like me to answer and I try to come up with a cute name for this new segment at the end of the podcast something really catchy and unusual a real grabber and I came up with ask Glenn <laughs> okay so I'm not all that creative but if you do want to ask a question that you would like me to, to try to answer on the podcast feel free to go to my website it's glenkirshner.com, not hard to remember, and send me a question, and I promise I will review every question that I receive, because I don't have people who review things for me. You know, this Justice Matters work that we do here seven days a week is myself and my wife, Nilou Farr, who's my partner in this strange new professional chapter two, so I will review every question you send, and I'll try to answer some of them on these weekly podcasts
1: coming up next there are indications criminal charges may be coming for former president trump in new york this is justice matters hi beowulf here with justice matters and i'm here to remind you about one of the best decisions i've made recently getting factor meals eating is so much easier for me with factor's delicious ready-to-eat meals every fresh never frozen meal is chef crafted dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes you'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week including calorie smart protein plus and keto factor is flexible for your schedule get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up today and save. I've done the math and I can tell you Factor is less expensive than takeout. And every meal is dietitian approved, nutritious and delicious. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and start meeting your meal and nutrition goals. Head over to factormeals.com/glen50 and use code GLEN50 to get 50% off. That's code GLEN50 at factormeals.com/glen50 to get 50% off. Remember, go to factormeals.com/GLEN50 and use code GLEN50 to get 50% off today. Prosecutors in New York have invited Donald Trump to appear before the grand jury. Does this mean criminal charges are actually coming for Trump? Here's
2: Glenn. Okay, friends. So with all of that said, let's turn to the week's legal recap. And, you know, I I feel like for this week's legal recap, we should do a lightning round, you know, rapid fire review, because there are so many stories that broke this week that are so bad for Donald Trump that... I'm beginning to feel like maybe accountability might actually be coming. So let's start with one of the big stories of the week. This from the New York Times. Prosecutors signal criminal charges for Trump are likely. Now I know what you're saying, friends. We've heard it all before. You fooled us once. You fooled us twice. Are you trying to fool us a third time? Particularly in New York where the district attorney Alvin Bragg's prosecution team told him many months ago, we've got the goods on Donald Trump, we have enough to indict him, we have enough to convict him, let's go, and district attorney Bragg said, nope. But now, it does look like there are concrete signs that Donald Trump will soon be indicted in New York. What are those concrete signs? Well, the reporting is that Donald Trump's lawyers have been told by the prosecutors that they are inviting Donald Trump to appear before the grand jury. That's a tell. Here's why this development signals that indictments are likely coming. At the very end of a grand jury investigation, prosecutors will sometimes Invite the target of the investigation the person they have been investigating the person they are intending to indict to testify before the grand jury So friends the first logical question might be well, why do they only invite the target? Why don't they subpoena the target and force him or her to appear before the grand jury? well Because you can't force somebody to testify if that person has a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination. And Donald Trump not only has a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, but he's not afraid to use it, is he? He invoked it more than 400 times when Tish James, the New York State Attorney General, tried to question him in her civil fraud suit, and you see a subpoena. To the grand jury is a court order it's the court directing compelling a witness to appear and testify but if that witness that target of the investigation has a fifth amendment right such that their truthful testimony would incriminate them the constitution says no person can be compelled to be a witness against himself or herself so that's why prosecutors ordinarily do not subpoena the target of an investigation, the person we intend to indict, because that person has a Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination, which trumps sorry, uh, trumps the subpoena, overrides the subpoena. So that's why we simply invite somebody, not compelling them, not forcing them via a subpoena. We invite them to testify. Why do we invite them to testify? Well, we give the target of the investigation an opportunity to present their side of the story to the grand jury. Let me let you in on a little secret, friends. Prosecutors don't always get everything right. Okay, that's not exactly breaking news, is it? So if you invite the target to appear before the grand jury, maybe the target will accept the invitation go into the grand jury and say, ladies and gentlemen, this whole thing is a big misunderstanding. I did not commit any crimes, and here's why. The prosecutors are wrong in their quest to indict me. Now, do targets often accept the invitation to go into the grand jury and under oath explain themselves? Almost never. It does happen from time to time. I've had it happen. Now, is Donald Trump going to accept the invitation to come in and testify? Of course not. But here's the important piece, at least for purposes of our conclusion that an indictment is imminent. We save this invitation until the very end of the grand jury investigation, right before we're ready to ask the grand jury to vote on charges, to vote out an indictment. It's at that stage we've already developed all of the other evidence and information through the testimony of all the other witnesses who have appeared before the grand jury, through the documentation and the records that we have subpoenaed to the grand jury. And when we have all of the facts in hand, that's when we invite the target to come in and testify and we are fully armed with all of the facts all of the information all of the evidence so if the target accepts the invitation and testifies we can question him or her about all of it and here's a fun fact friends when we invite somebody to appear before the grand jury we send them a letter and do you know what prosecutors call that letter we call it a May West letter Who is Mae West? Well, you know, if you are a person of a certain age like me, you'll probably remember that Mae West was a famous Hollywood actress. She first became popular in the 1930s and the 1940s. You can certainly watch some of her clips on YouTube. If you're not familiar with her work, she was a unique actress. She had a unique delivery, and at one point she was kind of the Queen of the one-liners. She had lots of great one-liners. So there are a number of famous Mae West quotes. And I think one of the most famous quotes came from a movie in which she's in a scene talking with a, a gentleman who's in a uniform, dressed in a uniform. I think they're in a bar. And she said, you know, I always did like a man in uniform. Why don't you come up and see me sometime? And that became one of Mae West's most famous quotes. I think if you watch the clip, she actually said, why don't you come up sometime and see me? But the way it is now recounted is, you know, Mae West said, why don't you come up and see me sometime? And prosecutors decades ago, for whatever reason, perhaps thinking they were witty, started to refer to these target letters, these invitations to appear before the grand jury as May West letters, because the substance of the letter was, why don't you come up and see the grand jury sometime? Okay, so I don't think anybody's going to be asking prosecutors to play the comedy clubs anytime soon. But friends, this May West letter that was delivered to Donald Trump inviting him to testify indicates we're at the tail end of the New York grand jury investigation. And the next stop, ought to be an indictment of Donald Trump.
1: Coming up next, Glenn discusses the role of Kellyanne Conway after she met with Manhattan prosecutors who are probing Donald Trump's alleged involvement in an illegal 2016 hush money payment. This is Justice Matters.
0: Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills.
1: There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at
0: meta.com slash metaverse impact. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news.
1: former Trump campaign manager Kellyanne Conway has been named as a person of interest in the Stormy Daniels payout case in Manhattan. Will she spill the beans on her former boss?
2: Here's Glenn. Okay, friends, on to the next story. And this story, friends, is really kind of a a footnote to the first story because it also involves the New York District Attorney's investigation of Donald Trump. And it looks like the prosecutors had... Kellyanne Conway testify before the grand jury. That's right, Kellyanne Conway, queen of alternative facts. But boy, there was a really interesting little nugget that was disclosed about what Kellyanne Conway did in connection with the hush money payments that Trump and Michael Cohen made to Stormy Daniels. Of course, that looks like what Donald Trump, may first be indicted for in New York, those hush money payments, and the crimes that were committed as part of that particular conspiracy, that criminal scheme. Well, what we learned is that after Michael Cohen, Donald Trump's former attorney and fixer, after Michael Cohen made these dirty payments to Stormy Daniels to try to keep her mouth shut about her affair with Donald Trump, try to keep her mouth shut so she wouldn't say things that would hurt Donald Trump's chances of being elected in 2016. You know, in a very real sense, what Donald Trump was doing by paying off Stormy Daniels to keep quiet was robbing the American people of the full value of their vote by burying deeply damaging information about candidate Trump. And after these payments were complete, And all of the fraudulent paperwork was in place, all done by Michael Cohen at the direction of and for the benefit of Donald Trump. Michael Cohen then called Donald Trump to let him know, criminal mission accomplished. All good, hush money payments complete, fraudulent paperwork in place. But Donald Trump didn't take Michael Cohen's call. And Michael Cohen has said, boy, in hindsight, that was probably a bad sign. But who called Michael Cohen back? Kellyanne Conway. And here is what Kellyanne Conway reportedly said when Michael Cohen told her, hey, the deed was done, payments made, paperwork in place. Kellyanne Conway is quoted as saying, I'll pass along the good news. Yeah, she'll pass along the good news to Donald Trump that the criminal mission is complete. So really the only question that remains regarding Kellyanne Conway is, was she knowingly in the conspiratorial loop or was she unknowingly in the conspiratorial loop? But boy, it sure looks like one way or another based on the reporting she was in the loop. So it's no surprise that the New York prosecutors want to have a little chat with misalternative Alternative Facts and put her before the grand jury. You know, and I'll say, friends, when I heard this story, I was reminded of another story about eight or 10 months ago, when Kellyanne Conway wrote a book. And in that book, she said, you know, at the end of the Trump presidency, Donald Trump ambled up to me and said, Hey, honey, her word. Hey, honey, you want a pardon? Want a blanket pardon? Everybody needs one. Now, Kellyanne Conway said she declined Donald Trump's offer of a blanket pardon. I don't know if that's a fact or that's an alternative fact, her claim that she declined the pardon. We may learn more about that someday, but it sure is an interesting development learning that Kellyanne Conway was in the Stormy Daniels hush money payment loop. Okay, let's turn to the third story. This from the New York Times. Donald Trump says he would stay in the 2024 presidential race if indicted. Because of course he would. Why in the world would Donald Trump ever do anything for the good of the country rather than for the good of Donald Trump? And when asked if he would stay in the race, if prosecutors brought an indictment, he said, quote, Oh, absolutely. I wouldn't even think about leaving. And then he added that he believes an indictment would increase his poll numbers. Now, friends, look, I understand there is no legal bar, no prohibition, no law, no constitutional provision that says Somebody who is under serious, legitimate felony indictment and pending trial can't run to be president of the United States. I also get that there's a presumption of innocence. Innocent until proven guilty. Although, friends, can I let you in on a secret? That's only a trial presumption. What do I mean by that? The presumption of innocence only applies expressly When a jury is sworn in to decide a case and the judge instructs that jury now ladies and gentlemen you must presume the defendant innocent and the presumption of innocence never leaves him or her unless and until the government proves guilt beyond a reasonable doubt you know the presumption of innocence is not just like in the air all around us it is a trial presumption that is the only time in the criminal justice system when it applies at trial. I've written about this in years past, but, you know, I don't know. I think we're taking the presumption of innocence a little too far when we're letting a criminal politician who is under legitimate felony indictment pending trial to run for president of the United States. But you know what, friends, let him run because he will lose bigly. Okay, friends, let's turn to the reform topic of the day, and frankly, I'm not sure I would call this um, a proposed reform. I'm not quite sure what to call this. It's a concern. It's troubling. It's potentially extraordinarily damaging to our democracy, and it involves a decision that the Department of Justice has apparently made, but that DOJ has not shared with the American people. Now I've been saying for quite a while that given the Department of Justice's inaction over the course of the last two years and two months since Trump ordered the attack on the Capitol, the Trump orchestrated and incited insurrection, given DOJ's inaction, given the apparent inability of the Department of Justice to hold Trump and his criminal associates accountable in a timely manner, and letting this cancer fester and grow, and letting Donald Trump, the chief insurrectionist, run for the presidency again and continue to poison the well of our democracy. Given all that, there really needs to be an autopsy of sorts conducted on how the Department of Justice performed or failed to perform in the post-Trump era. Let's look at the letter by which Jack Smith was appointed special counsel. It's dated November 18th, 2022, that's when Merrick Garland, the Attorney General, appointed Jack Smith as special counsel. What the appointment letter does, friends, is it sets out the scope of what Jack Smith is permitted to investigate, and it talks about why he's being appointed, why it's necessary for him to investigate the crimes of Donald Trump, and it's a short letter, so just um, indulge me while I read a little bit of the Jack Smith appointment letter. It's titled, Appointment of a Special Counsel. Attorney General Merrick Garland announced today the appointment of former career Justice Department prosecutor and former Chief Prosecutor for the Special Court in The Hague, Jack Smith, to serve as Special Counsel to oversee two ongoing criminal investigations. Please put a pin in that. Jack Smith was appointed to oversee two ongoing criminal investigations. The first is the investigation, as described in court filings in the District of Columbia, into whether any person or entity unlawfully interfered with the transfer of power following the 2020 presidential election or the certification of the Electoral College vote held on January 6, 2021. The second investigation is the ongoing investigation involving classified documents and other presidential records, as well as the possible obstruction of that investigation referenced and described in court filings submitted in a pending matter in the Southern District of Florida. And then this quote from Merrick Garland, quote, based on recent developments including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for the president in the next election, and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel, said Attorney General Garland. Such an appointment underscores the department's commitment to both independence and accountability in particularly sensitive matters. It also allows prosecutors and agents to continue their work expeditiously and to make decisions indisputably guided only by the facts and the law. The Attorney General also stated, although the special counsel will not be subject to the day-to-day supervision of any official of the department, he must comply with the regulations, procedures, and policies of the department. I will ensure that the special counsel receives the resources to conduct this work quickly and completely Given the work done to date and Mr. Smith's prosecutorial experience, I am confident that this appointment will not slow the completion of these investigations. So friends, what can we extrapolate from this appointment letter? Let me try to break it down to its essence. The Attorney General said, I have to appoint a special counsel. Why? Because Donald Trump is now running for president and because Donald Trump is the announced opponent of my boss, Joe Biden. This is what Merrick Garland is saying. Because Donald Trump is running against my boss, Joe Biden, I as the Attorney General can't be involved in investigating Donald Trump's crimes because that would be an appearance of conflict. People would say, of course you're going to go hard after Trump because Trump's running against your boss, Joe Biden. Joe Biden, the person who appointed you Attorney General, and the person who can fire you from that position. And actually, that concern, the appearance of conflict, is a legitimate one. Makes some sense to me, friends, to avoid the appearance of conflict. Merrick Garland said, I have to get out of the investigating Donald Trump business, so I'm turning it over entirely to Jack Smith Special Counsel. And Jack Smith, let me hasten to add, has a very impressive resume. He has prosecuted Republican criminals, he's prosecuted Democrats who were criminals, he's prosecuted war criminals as the Chief Prosecutor at the Special Court in The Hague. He seems to be the real deal, and his actions are speaking as loudly as his resume. Because he sure looks like he's going 100 miles an hour, scorched earth trying to hold trump and company accountable in a way that let's face it the department of justice under merrick garland before jack smith's appointment did not seem to be doing let me get back on track here when merrick garland says i have to get out of the investigating trump business so i'm going to give all the criminal investigations of donald trump to this independent prosecutor jack smith And specifically, when I say all of the criminal investigations of Donald Trump, I'm only talking about two investigations. The insurrection and Trump's classified documents crimes. That's what I have asked Jack Smith to investigate because I, as Merrick Garland, and my Department of Justice cannot be in the business of investigating or prosecuting Donald Trump. And friends, I have to tell you, the minute I saw that appointment letter, you know what I said to myself? Oh, shit. That's a legal term. Because one of the takeaways, one of the important takeaways, is if Merrick Garland has to get out of the business of investigating Donald Trump and he's turned it all over to Jack Smith, but expressly said the only thing Jack Smith will be investigating is two crimes the insurrection and the documents crimes, then what happened to all the other crimes that Donald Trump committed as president? They're going uninvestigated? They're going unindicted? They're going to go unprosecuted? Are you kidding me? Do you know how dangerous that is? Because let me talk for just a minute about some of Donald Trump's crimes while he was president that are now apparently going to go uninvestigated, unprosecuted, unaddressed because Jack Smith isn't doing it by virtue of the appointment letter and Merrick Garland said he and his Department of Justice can't do it because of the appearance of conflict, so Donald Trump's multiple felony crimes are going to go unaddressed? And we're talking about crimes like obstructing justice by Donald Trump. Make no mistake about it, he committed those crimes. They were documented in the Trump Russia report that Bob Mueller issued. Donald Trump told his White House counsel to lie for him and to create false documents. Donald Trump fired Jim Comey to stop an investigation into Trump's criminal associate, Mike Flynn, and on and on and on. Multiple felony obstruction of justice crimes committed by Donald Trump while he was president. And Bob Mueller testified, hey, it's all in there. It's in the Trump-Russia report. All of the evidence has been catalogued and documented and detailed and preserved, and Donald Trump can be indicted the minute he leaves office. But we all know he hasn't been. And now, it looks like he never will be. It looks like those crimes are going uninvestigated, unaddressed, unindicted, and unprosecuted. Which sends the clear signal to the next president that he gets to do it all over again with impunity. How about bribery and extortion of President Zelensky? Those are crimes. Those are crimes that I contend a novice prosecutor could prove in his or her sleep if we could only get the dang thing into court in front of 12 jurors sitting in a jury box. Donald Trump took congressional money, congressionally appropriated funds that were supposed to go to Ukraine to help Ukraine protect its own people against unlawful Russian aggression. And Donald Trump took that money and held it and figuratively put it in his back pocket and said to President Zelensky, I know you want this money to protect your people. I know you're entitled to this money because Congress has designated that it must go to you, but I need a favor, though. I need you to announce a fictitious investigation into my political opponent, Joe Biden so I'm going to wrongfully and unlawfully withhold these funds. I'm going to leverage this money and demand that you do me a dirty political favor before I release this money to you. And don't forget, as Mick Mulvaney said, we do it all the time, get over it. I hope prosecutors are looking at Mick Mulvaney. And friends, if DOJ does not investigate, indict, prosecute Donald Trump for bribing and extorting President Zelensky, DOJ is putting its stamp of approval on that conduct and in a very real sense encouraging the next criminal president to do it all over again. And I could go on, we could talk about Donald Trump's obstructing congressional inquiries by telling all of his executive branch officials to defy lawfully issued congressional subpoenas. That's a crime. I could talk about Donald Trump tampering with witnesses like Ambassador Marie Yovanovitch during her congressional testimony. He's tweeting out things about how every country she was sent to, you know, she ruined. Things turned bad because of her. I'm paraphrasing. But that's a communication by Donald Trump designed to impede or chill her testimony. You know, and friends, that's just a random sampling of some of Donald Trump's crimes while in office. And if the Department of Justice refuses to investigate and indict and prosecute him for those crimes, DOJ is putting its stamp of approval on all of that conduct and sending the signal to future presidents that you get to do it all over again. Is that something our democracy can survive? So, yes, we need an autopsy. We need an after-action investigation about why the Department of Justice has apparently decided to forego holding a criminal president accountable for all of those crimes. We need to do better.
1: Coming up next, Glenn starts a new Q&A segment where you get to ask him things you'd like to know. This is Justice Matters. As a new feature, Glenn is now answering your questions and giving up some personal stories and anecdotes from his past. He begins with one of his top listener questions. How did he begin working at MSNBC? Here's Glenn.
2: Okay, friends, let's finish up with one quick personal story. And as I mentioned earlier, if you do want to ask me a question or have me address something in these weekly long-form podcasts, please just drop me a note. At glennkirchner.com on my website and I will go through them each week and try to pick out one or two and include them at the end of these kitchen table chats that we have on the weekends. So a question that I've had many people ask in the five years since I retired from the federal government from the Department of Justice is how did you end up being a legal analyst on TV? Frankly it's a question I still ask myself. From time to time, you know, I'm still surprised they let this gutter kid from Jersey run his mouth on TV. But I am grateful and I am humbled that they do and that I can at least have some tiny voice regarding the legal landscape and the legal challenges that our nation is facing today. So here's the truth about how I landed on TV. I have this brother-in-law, you see. His name is Dave. I love him dearly. I respect him enormously. He is an old school newsman. That's what he is. Now he's younger than me, but he's an old school newsman. And I was a journalism major undergrad and I loved the study of journalism. I had a remarkable mentor, a gentleman named Clark Mollenhoff, who was my faculty advisor and my journalism professor, and he took me under his wing and he instilled in me a love Of journalism, the study of journalism, the practice of journalism. You know though frankly I was never all that interested in becoming a journalist. I sure enjoyed the course of study as an undergraduate student, but my brother-in-law Dave is a journalist and as I say he's one of the best old-school newsmen that I've ever met. He's a news writer and a news producer for MSNBC and he's been with MSNBC basically since its inception back in the the mid to late 90s. And while I was still with the Department of Justice from time to time, I would visit my brother-in-law, my sister, my niece, and my nephew, and I would go up to 30 Rockefeller Center, where Dave worked, and I would watch him write and produce the news. It was intensely interesting to me, and I was fascinated by it. And when I would be there, he would introduce me to folks at MSNBC and... I ended up getting to know some of the anchors and the producers and the bookers, and I was really intrigued with what I saw regarding the legal analysts who had the honor, in my estimation, of having even just a little bit of a voice with the viewing public about the legal issues of the day, you know, what they mean, trying to make them understandable for everybody because the legal landscape is pretty confusing at times, and the legal terms that, that are used can be really dense. And I thought, you know, that looks like a challenge, and it looks like a, a great opportunity to have a voice in this sort of public discourse about what's going on in our nation on the legal front. So I got to know some of the folks at MSNBC. And as I moved toward my retirement in 2018, my brother-in-law said, you know, would you ever consider trying to become a legal analyst on air? And he said, look, he made it clear I don't have the authority to put you on TV or anybody else on TV, I'm just a news writer and a news producer, but I can introduce you to some more of the folks who can make those decisions and if you can talk your way onto TV, you know, have at it. So. I gave it a shot. As my retirement date approached, June 1st, 2018, I had spoken with a number of the folks up at MSNBC and they indicated they were willing to give me a shot, a test run. So when I retired on June 1st, MSNBC put me on a train from Union Station in Washington, D.C. to 30 Rockefeller Center in New York. And at 6 a.m. on June 2nd, I was sitting in front of a camera, but I wasn't sitting at a table with an anchor or a host. I was sitting in this small room by myself looking into a black box, literally a black box directly in front of me. There was a camera mounted on top of the black box and I learned pretty quickly, and my brother-in-law had warned me about this, that this is sometimes how you appear. You're not necessarily sitting at the table next to the anchor. Sometimes you're remote from another room in the studio and you're just looking at a black box. You don't even see the anchor. All of a sudden the anchor's voice comes on and starts asking you questions and you have to appear like you're involved in a face-to-face conversation even though, as I say, you're staring into a black box. Well, I thought, okay, this is a little... um, intimidating, a little anxiety producing as I'm sitting there at 5 55 a.m. my first day of retirement asking myself what the heck am I doing here and can I actually talk on TV? I have no idea. Now I knew I'd been speaking with juries for 30 years and frankly that was my great passion professionally speaking it was my great honor. I absolutely loved trying cases I tried more than 50 murder trials, multiple RICO cases, more lower level cases than I can count. Everything from guns and drugs and stolen cars and property crimes and assault crimes and obstruction of justice, conspiracy cases, arson, rape, etc., cetera, et cetera. But I had no idea if I could talk for three or five minutes at a time on TV. And frankly, I was probably more nervous that morning than I had been in court in a very long time. But I survived that first appearance and it turned out the first few days to be kind of a trial by fire situation because MSNBC ended up putting me on air, I believe it was nine times in the first three or four days, giving me a test run, kind of kicking my tires, so to speak. But for me, it felt like it was sink or swim. I didn't really know what I was doing or How I should do it, but you know, I think I took on some water, but managed to swim more than sink. And not too long after that, MSNBC offered me a a contract as a legal analyst. And I've been on contract with them now for going on five years. And I continue to be honored and humbled to have the opportunity to do something I never thought I would do, you know, growing up a gutter kid in Jersey, running my mouth on TV. So let me finish with one story about a particular appearance during the first, I think, 24 hours back in 2018 when I was up at 30 Rockefeller Center, and it was an appearance with host Alex Witt, and I hope she doesn't mind me telling this story. If you know Alex Witt, she generally is on MSNBC on the weekends, she's been at it for a very long time, and she is a terrific news person and a great anchor and a very generous host when you're on with her and she was one of the first people I appeared with that day back in June of 2018 and you know I was nervous as all get out and I was trying to figure out if I could handle this you know TV thing and I think I had a pretty good on-air conversation with Alex and at the end of the conversation Alex Witt said to me on air and I quote Glenn consider yourself booked for next weekend so I hope Alex doesn't mind me saying that I feel like she's one of my patron saints at MSNBC because she was so generous and it was so reinforcing that first day when she made it pretty clear that I guess I didn't suck and she invited me back on air for the following weekend so a big thank you a big shout out to MSNBC host Alex Witt and that friends is the personal story for today as I say please ask questions because I enjoy sharing you know information and anecdotes that people may find interesting or may find useful and as I say I will check all of the messages that come in online at my website, glennkirshner.com, and I'll try to take on one or two next week. And also, if you want to find me elsewhere on this social media thing, you can find me on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at glennkirshner2, the number 2. Someday I hope to be promoted to Glenn Kirshner 1, but for the time being, I'm kirshner two. If you'd like to more formally support what we're doing here at Justice Matters, our all-volunteer operation, you can go over to patreon.com. You can sign up to become a patron and support our all-volunteer efforts. If you do, I will send you some Team Justice and Justice Matters stickers and a personal handwritten note of thanks. And one more thing before signing off. I have a newly released documentary on Peacock streaming called Who Killed Robert Wan. It is a case that is extraordinarily near and dear to my heart. I investigated it, I indicted it, I tried it. I could not figure out who killed the victim, Robert Juan. so I ended up indicting all three men who covered up Robert's murder for the cover-up, conspiracy, obstruction of justice tampering with evidence, and I hope people will watch this two-part documentary, Who Killed Robert Wan on Peacock, because there's a tip line embedded in the documentary, and if anybody has any information about who killed Robert Wan on Swan Street in Northwest Washington, D.C. back in 2006, please drop a dime. Please call the tip line. Speak with the homicide detective and provide any information you might have about who killed Robert Wong. Thank you, friends. And as always, until next time, please stay safe, please stay tuned, and I look forward to talking with you all again soon.